Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. The filmmaker and photographer Ramel Ross said in an artist statement accompanying one of his photo series, To be black is the greatest fiction of my life, yet I'm still bound to its myth. Ramel shared this quote in an interview with Jason Fox, the editor of the nonfiction journal World Records, as part of a new audio series being launched by World Records. The series is called Trust Issues, and it explores how images can both bring us together and alienate us from each other. The episode featuring Rommel focused on the historical role of nonfiction cinema in teaching us how to see, inhabit, and police race. How do documentary images both reflect and actively reshape the lived experiences of people of color? Last week, I was at the Camden International Film Festival in Maine with Jason and Rommel, and we hosted a live panel discussion expanding on some of these ideas. The director, Milisutando Bongela, whose debut feature, Milisutando, premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival, also joined us for an intense discussion that considered the responsibilities of the maker, the critic, and the viewer in how nonfiction images construct and reinforce ideas of racial difference. We're thrilled to share the conversation on today's podcast. And please listen all the way to the end for a surprise cameo from the filmmaker Kirsten Johnson. I would love our guests today to also briefly introduce themselves. Maybe Millie, we can start with you. Thank you. Thanks, Evika. Thank you to Sif and this wonderful panel. Um, my name is Medusu Tando Bongela, and I'm a filmmaker and storyteller from South Africa. And I have a film that I made, which I'm a first-time filmmaker, and it's actually playing at one o'clock today here. So... <laughs> um, it's so nice to be in the space with, with friends, um, and people that, uh, you know, have walked with me on this journey in the documentary space. And I think one of my other skills is that I'm a very powerful manifester because for many years while making the film, I was like, you know, one day I really want to be on a panel with Bernal Ross. So it's happening. Um, <laughs> thank you. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So thrilled to have you here, Millie. Uh, Jason, do you want to say a few words? Sure. Um, thank you to Camden for organizing this and uh, giving us space to have this conversation. My name is Jason Fox. I'm the editor of a journal called World Records. Um, we are published uh, out of NYU and we mostly put out uh, one to two issues a year trying to think about questions that have real stakes for sort of nonfiction communities very broadly conceived and try to bring scholars, critics, makers, programmers, policymakers so in conversation to, to think through complex questions. And we're, uh, as of yesterday, we're sort of, we're also, we also 
um, our audio producers and have just, you know, are in the process of releasing um, a five episode series titled Trust Issues, um, which is installed in its entirety over in Rockland, where all the story forms material is. Um, but I'll talk much more about that um, as we go. Cool. Hello. Um, really happy to be here. Uh, my name is Ramel, and I call myself a liberated documentarian. Um, thanks, KJ. KJ gets it. KJ and Tab get it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I guess it's funny because you can't be liberated from uh, a form, uh, can you? But yeah, just really happy to be here and the, the chance to talk about things that uh, are so important to me and to, to think alongside of these three is wonderful. And um, Millie's film is, is fantastic. And I, I tried to memorize a couple lines because I didn't realize she was so, so much of a poet um, in the way in which the entire constellation of, uh, of things are working in the film. But I'm like blanking on them. But I'll bring up one, but whatever, anyway, thanks. We'll, we'll have an excerpt as well to help jog your memory. Um, so today's conversation is actually inspired by one of the episodes in the podcast series that Jason was just talking about that he and World Records are putting out. Uh, that episode stars, if I may use that word, uh, Ramel. And it's about the relationship between fiction, nonfiction, and race, how images have historically constructed and reinforced our understanding of race and how maybe images can also reshape those understandings. We'll talk for about a little less than an hour and then open it up to the audience. So, you know, excited to kind of have a conversation with you guys as well. But to kick things off, I think we'll play a very short excerpt uh, from the podcast episode that Jason and Romel are on and use that as kind of a kickoff point. So, can we cue that clip? I'm talking with photographer and filmmaker Romel Ross. We're looking at a photograph by Henri Cartier-Bresson. It's called Behind the Gare Saint-Lazare. It sort of represents his idea of the uh, decisive moment, which has been you know, ubiquitous and extremely influential in photography and, and photographic theory. It's an image of a man jumping over a puddle. And he appears sort of frozen in time, with his heel hovering just millimeters over it. This guy is jumping from a ladder that seems to have been fallen, or maybe even placed to help someone uh, traverse this extremely expansive puddle. It's about time being frozen so that you can see this intricate, perceptive moment. It looks quite perfect. For the photographer Cartier-Bresson, Street photography was about capturing the ephemeral, spontaneous moments of modern life that can express a kind of poetic truth. It's a poetry that can't be captured in words, but it can be captured by a photographer who knows just where to look and exactly which hundredth of a second to snap the picture. The decisive moment celebrates the street photographer's freedom to be spontaneous, to look at whatever he wants, to make meaning however he wants. Like the man frozen in the image, hovering millimeters above a rain puddle. We don't know what happened before or after he jumped, but we get the sense of limitless possibility. Maybe he lands in the puddle, or maybe he never lands at all.
But Ramel argues that African Americans have had a very different relationship to photography. They haven't been able to wander or look freely. And historically, photography has been used to document, to classify, to decisively know and judge black people, not to set them free. To me, there's nothing more dangerous than images that make a claim to a type of knowledge. And so a counterpoint would be the indecisive moment, which to me has the potential to do the opposite, to put ambiguity in uh, the mind of the viewer. And I think to make images and be able to situate Black ambiguity in the context of truth is a powerful thing. Yeah, um, so I thought maybe, Jason, you could you know, talk a little bit about the premise of this episode. And um, if I could just offer a question that came to my mind when I first listened to this, this idea of decision and indecision, um, because right after this clip is a really wonderful line um, where you pose a question, I think you're sort of paraphrasing Rommel, and the question is, if I decide to trust this image, what's the worst that can happen? Which I found really provocative and interesting. And that's also talking about a kind of decision. So maybe like with that, I wanted to open that up as a kind of framing question, but maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about the podcast and yeah, how this theme of the decisive moment came to open it. Um, thanks, David. I mean, I'll quickly say that I'll pass things over to, to Ramel at some point to talk about the decisive and indecisive moment because the idea came because it's a great idea that, that Ramel has articulated, um, elsewhere. Um, I, so this is, you know, the, the, that was the first two minutes or two and a half minutes of the first episode of the series that sort of, you know, especially released this week. And so, which is to say, this is my first time sort of talking in any public way about it. Um, and having like, you know, you have like a bunch of imaginary conversations in your head and the first time like having a real conversation, I don't quite know which is like, I'm an editor, I, like, I don't know yet which is like the top level idea and the, you know, what flows. And so maybe at the, at the, to save myself from just, you know, rambling, I'll try to be very, you know, kind of, kind of, um, um, a bit, give some, you know, some ideas, some thoughts, um, and then we can sort of come back to, you know, them and, and flesh them out later and among others. You know, I think that, um, I mean, my entry point into this episode titled, you know, the, the freedom of fiction, thinking about the racialized boundaries of what we call fiction, you know, what we call nonfiction is, um, the entry point is whiteness and thinking about how whiteness operates in um, a, a, a field of documentary cultural production, which I am very much a part of. And, you know, I think that there is a really pernicious myth that shapes so much um, American, so many American conversations about race, that that racism as a function is a failure of public reason. Um, and it's a, for me, it's a pernicious myth because it doesn't explain how racism can continue to function, even if no one in, let's say, this room or this festival or this society that we live in, like, you know, feel, thinks that they, they hold racist beliefs. 
Um, um, and it's it's pernicious because it suggests that well, all like what needs to be done is that if people you know people knew better, um, and that has you know a lot of implications for documentary. Um, and I think that sort of where one of the ways in which documentary has sort of taken on the task um, of fulfilling this mission or addressing this this mythology is first you know in the origins we can think of. We can trace what we would call documentary, I think, to a lot of different fields of scientific and creative and journalistic um, and political practice. But one of them is, you know, looking to the 19 teens and 1920s and the origins and onset of the progressive uh, move, U.S. progressive movement. Um, and one of, at some point, we might listen to uh, one of the sections of this episode features a sort of a long-form conversation with the, the cultural theorist Saidiya Hartman, um, and specifically her book, Wayward Lives, which if you haven't read it, so I would say, like, leave this panel now and go read it. It's an amazing book. But, you know, one of the things, it does many things, um, but one of the things it does is really, really analyze, really address, you know, the way in which documentary techniques were pioneered by social scientists, by social workers, by police, by doctors um, as tools to manage um, the flow of African Americans to, you know, particularly to northern cities um, during, you know, the so-called um, Great Migration. And so, you know, in that case, the idea is, ah, oh, if we just had these techniques to to document the problems afflicting, you know, a race, uh, we can name them. And then we can, you know, we can improve other people's lives. And so there's like those, you know, there's a, a viciousness, I think, and a violence in that. But there's also perhaps still, you know, a myth that extends also over the, the course of the 20th century that, well, okay, we're, we're past that moment. We all know better than that. But actually what documentary can do is teach people, right? It can teach people the error of their ways. And I think that creates, you know, this idea and maybe a bit of cliche about the sobriety that documentary is fundamentally a sober form um, and its noblest mission can be to steer people in a better direction if we're just really clear in like how we talk how we name things and talk about things um, and you know i think so uh, you know i'll say I, quickly i think that that provides some backdrop for the way in which festivals have taken on over the last two years taken on a discourse of like oh this explosion of like fiction and nonfiction. we're really exploring the boundaries you know i feel like those boundaries have been explored for a very long time um, i'm excited in, about the ways that they continue to be explored and and really invest in a lot of filmmakers playing with those limits um but it sometimes feels like it's sort of summoning this myth of documentary sobriety and more noble function. And so maybe just the one other thing I'll say for a second, which is the other place this project started, was it actually started as um, a commission from the wonderful documentary organization, The Flaherty, that had, been, had sort of recorded 60 years of conversations that had been had at a documentary seminar, and I was invited to listen through this remarkable archive. And one of the first things I listened to, because I saw that, you know, Charles Burnett um, had been invited in 1979 to screen Killer of Sheep. Um, and I listened to the post-screening discussion, and it was really, and part of the episode in, engages with this, um, but the predominantly, maybe overwhelmingly, you know, white audience at the seminar in 1979 watched Killer of Sheep, and again, if you haven't seen it, 
leave the panel and go watch. I get such, you know, it's just such a beautiful fiction panel. film. Yeah, it's such a beautiful go fiction. Yeah, it's such, but it's it's clearly a work of, It's clearly. It's clearly a work of narrative cinema. I think if you watch it, but it was received as a documentary. Um, and the critiques that it received, and and Burnett was the subject of of a lot of critique. The critique was something effective. This doesn't do justice to the plight of black people and is actually going to reinforce racism. And if you are serious about the plight of black people, then you would make a film more sober, more intended to, to educate, you know, white people. Um, and so there's a way in which like this need, you know, I became very interested in this need to see things and maybe see things made by people of color as documentary that are clearly works of fiction. And that felt like some, you know, a form of policing that maybe, you know, that, that continues to this day. So those are maybe some of the, the maybe the, the cornerstones that inform putting this, you know, this episode together, which, which features sort of engagement with Ramel and his work, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, and then um, Saidia Hartman and um, her book, Wayward Lives. Thanks, Jason. You've brought up a lot of different things, and I want to be able to get to all of them. Kind of back up and start with the idea that you mentioned of race as a kind of myth around which public reason, I mean, we've shaped, you know, our sense of our civic sense, you know, um, a sense of public reason. And I want to maybe go to Ramel. You have a line in this podcast. There's a moment in which you say, and I think maybe it's from your project, South County, Alabama, where you say that maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but blackness is, is a true lie. Um, and you're kind of invoking this idea of race as a fiction, as a construction, but with very real implications. I think that is an idea that in the last you know, few years has become more and more accepted that race is a construction. It's not that racism doesn't exist because of race. Uh, race exists because of racism. Race is an alibi created to further certain kinds of inequities. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak to that from your experience. Like, what did you mean when you said that it's a true lie? And how do myth and reality intersect in, intersect in your understanding of race? Yeah, that's... um. All the questions are just so big, so it's tough to, um, you know, that's why, you you know, you end up with sort of quippy one-liners in order to, like, sort of summarize something or to hold something that uh, refuses to be hold or held. Um, I think that, for me, um, I think about photography and film as the technology of racism in that you have an idea, uh, which is... Um, that there are people that are like this and these people do this and they are X, Y, and Z. And then you have to prove that to people uh, across the world um, or people who don't have a direct relationship with those people. Uh, and so um, you need some material, right? Photography was born at this time when it was just quite perfect to, uh, specifically because it's, you know, arguably one of the most powerful mediums because of its, its, it, it belies so much, right? It's, it's so visceral. And, you know, no one needs to speak to you about the power of cinema and the power of the photographic image, but imagine having only seen paintings and then seeing a photograph. People were fucking terrified because they thought their souls were taken. Um, and this was in black and white. And so you give someone an idea that people are like X, Y, and Z. You give them an object that can replace perception. In fact, produce a fiction, a nonfiction, a dream, 
It can it does everything that we can't even articulate in a time in which we didn't have language to articulate things, and then you distribute it across the world. So um, basically, it's just reinforcing uh, some of the yeah nefarious ideas that organized um, at least Western logic in in the U.S., which is a specific type of racism. And then obviously, there's other uh, forms of it. I forgot the other question. Not that that was a direct answer to that question. No, no. <laughs> No, I think you 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 really you got at what I was asking, which is just like trying to grapple with this idea of race being both a myth and a reality. Um, and I think what you're getting at is that just the way that film and photography has worked historically shows that that is the case because it has been used to prove, like you said, that certain people are certain ways. And um, yeah, one thing I think is interesting with that. Sorry to interrupt. Is that um, the proof is in the mind of the person, which is why I am interested in the ambiguity to allow things to be both there and not there for there to be a plurality to the image. Um, it, it's not that when you see in the 30s or the 40s or the 20s a black person on a porch in the South, which is the, 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 the origin, Southern, the Southern photographic tradition is the origin of the document as a, a social, for social use in the government. Like that's where it started because people were way more accessible in the South then. And, um, and people were always thinking that the South was going to, you know, be gone soon. So there was this, like this restoration culture. Uh, um, there's a book called Capturing the South, which talks about it really succinctly and gives you the names of the sociologists. And, you know, Du Bois being um, a pioneer that doesn't get credit for um, initiating this sort of photographic fieldwork. But obviously his was responsive to the problem. Um, it's in the mind of the viewer. And so, you know, you give someone the image and they have an opportunity to, they could be looking at something relatively neutral, but they've heard this thing about this person. So of course you look for those markers, you right? You tell someone, you know, don't think of an elephant. Of course you think of an elephant. Like some of these things are fundamentally built in. And so that's to me, what's so beautiful about and so powerful about the image is that it has that capacity for, um, quite literally anything. What, what question did you ask? What's the worst that could happen? If I'd I love decide that to trust yeah. the image, what's the worst that can happen? And I, I say that human beings will do anything. Um, and, I, so, and it's kind of a cop-out answer, but the worst that can happen to me is the worst that we can do, the worst that we mm. can think of. Um, I want to go over to Millie now. You know, you've been, you guys have been talking about a very specific American tradition of image making and how it relates to, you know, this, a specific history of racism. Millie, you, your film explores um, another parallel, but also very distinct history, which is of apartheid and your specific experience of growing up in the trans sky, which was Ibantustan, our Black nation. Uh, before we get into that, should we roll an excerpt from your film and then? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So that's a clip um, that's at the beginning of um, film two in, in, in our documentary titled Ukutagatwa, which means bewitchment. And the whole entire idea is speaking to exactly what we're talking about today, which is the power of the image. Um, and we use references from uh, Lenny Riffenstahl without really referencing Lenny Riffenstahl because the main reference point for what is a nation, what is a state, what will be an apartheid nation be, was very much this country and Europe, especially Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, as well as they used to show a lot of films 
TV only came in South Africa in 1976, but before they'd have cinema houses where they would invite people, white people mostly, to view images from around the world. And they were mostly mainly referencing from this country and Europe in the 1930s. And they would also have uh, films play for black people in, in hostels and beer halls, which were also reinforcing using the medium of cinema. Um, and for, uh, in Zulu, the word for, for to photograph someone is to, which is to capture the soul. Um, and so there's a very, there was a very intentional um, use and a very fastidious application of cinema and, and the image onto the people of South Africa in the ideations of the construction of apartheid and even the Manchester. So this, and the film too looks exactly at that. Like before apartheid becomes an idea, ideologically, it becomes psychologically, it starts with what are you showing? And I think a lot of the times when we talk about apartheid and we talk about these things, we really um, don't talk enough about what created these ideologies in people's minds in the first place. And it is the power of the films that were shown. We hardly look to that. Um, and the thing that I'm really interested in talking about or contributing to this conversation is, is who gets to make the picture, who gets to make the image, and who gets to, when we talk about race being a myth and race being um, something that we're seeing, for a long time, it was people who were not seeing race that were making images. Um, and what were, what were the ones who were seeing race doing? Um, in the 1930s, the French government um, put out a law in West Africa called the Laval Decree, where the Laval Decree basically said, no African shall produce their own image. And for 30 years, they didn't do that. It was only French people who were allowed to make films. And the first person who would successfully made a film was Sembene in 1962 when the film came out. And um, I can't find the law in South Africa that says I was not allowed to pick up a camera as a black African woman until 30 years ago. But there was no way that I could walk down Yansmat and carry a camera and point it at people, especially at white people. And so what does this mean that me as a black African person and Southern African black women have never been allowed to play with this technology, have never been allowed to see. And so my film is really interested in, in looking at whiteness and looking back at whiteness and saying, I didn't start this problem. This is not a thing that I'm going to be, at, 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 I can't be tasked with the thing of ending it and always talking about it and always being the one that is the, the victims of the race of racism cannot always be the ones talking about it. We need to create a table just like this one where we say, actually, what does it mean to engage the people who have been the benefactors of racism. Uh, and, and I'm most interested, especially in our white liberal friends and white liberal spaces, because I've never been chased by a dog. I've never been um, or, or like shot at by the police. I, I've never experienced racism in that kind of hardcore sense that we always see the images of apartheid and racism um, propagating. However, I know what it means that to walk into a town like this, a room like this, and to operate in these kinds of spaces. And there's like, I'm more interested in the miasma, the silent miasma that's, that, that operates between us as people and how cinema has contributed and maintains that status quo. Um, and so I, I want to, I want to, yeah, my contribution, I really want to be for it to be about the who's behind the camera. And when we, when we're saying we're seeing racism, who's seeing it? Who, how, how do we, however I've been trained to engage um, and a lot of my film is about that and the difficulties I face actually at um, the challenges and, and very interesting ways in which when I was walking around with a camera and pointing it at white people, what did I experience? Even people who I love, even people who are my friends, because one of them said to me, I'm actually afraid when she, when she kept saying, I, I, I'm really, I can see she's uncomfortable. 
And she, she eventually said, I'm afraid that when you really look at me, you will see the racism in me. And I was like, indeed, because it's there. How can it not be? How can it not be? We've all been cooked in the same soup. And also as, as, as me, as the, as the African and the black person, I too have imbibed certain things about myself because of this medium. And how do I address those? What does it mean for me to sit with my um, psychosis and you to sit with your psychosis and for us to unpack um, and, and re-exercise what it means to see and to look? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what you just said makes me think of also how the history of documentary is closely tied up with colonial filmmaking, uh, official colonial film units, um, you know, especially in the mid 20th century when there was this kind of shift in how imperial regimes were presenting themselves, like the British Empire went from kind of being this uh, very open exploiter of resources in the colonies to positioning itself as a civilizing force. And filmmaking was such an integral part of that. They were making educationals and, you know, welfare focused films. They were making films and showing films in Africa and India, you know, all these other places that were teaching people sanitation and how to make a bank account and also training locals. And I, I often feel like we have not really grappled with how those historical developments have embedded documentary form and form in ways that still exist because a lot of important early documentarians, including people like John Grierson, regarded as the father of British documentary, came from those traditions, you know? And so there are modes of looking embedded in documentary filmmaking that are premised on these assumptions of civilizational difference, you know, and, um, and I also wonder if we have not just like those ways of looking, but a, a lot of the ways in which we think about documentary nowadays as a kind of progressive force is maybe regurgitating some of that 100%. ideology, you know, yeah. this idea that documentary can teach and change and bring knowledge to us. And I don't know if it's historically that different from um, that kind of um, discourse that you know was really was really undergirding colonial filmmaking. And I'll just say there's a website called colonialfilm.org, I believe. Um, it was created, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years ago. I don't remember exactly when. And it has an incredible digitized archive of films made by various British colonial film units. Um, and watching them, it is really quite incredible. I mean, it's a huge variety, uh, but just the ways in which documentary form, you know, you can see how documentary form still bears those traces, that kind of, that impulse of, uh, of the benevolent yeah. colonizer, you know? And that's exactly what we, we start with in that film, is in film two. And what we're doing in that, I mean, we, we knew we can't teach, like we knew that we're not in a position to teach anybody. Um, and at the same time, we wanted to have the audience not be passive. So when some people watch those clips, they go, oh yes, we remember when things were orderly. We remember when the Africans were wearing their nice clothes and we, we went down to Durban to go for our family holidays and it was so friendly um, and, and they were so nice. And so, and so 
we we're relying on how fascism exists in a romantic way in all of our memories and 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 all these ideas about order and structure and and what what a nation is and how, when things were safer and we started off by in the research I, I i started off by going how do how am i seen in history as a black woman when i look in history can i find a reliable representation of who i am whether it's news whether it's films whether it's propaganda whether it's all things there's nothing that's reliable why because i'm not behind the camera and this person who's filming me is a complete foreigner using this technology and so what does that then mean in terms of managing and handling and touching this this footage um i can only enter through the door of subversion all i can do is subvert and then the subversion leads to a change or a comment about form so whether i meant to whether we meant to um make a film that was going to be about propaganda or, or history like we didn't have a choice but to reconstruct and deconstruct the form of documentary making because we knew that we couldn't use any archival images as a reliable source of of truth because it wasn't true and so the juxtaposition and the associative editing of like cutting very quick clips then transforms the meaning of what is now being shown and for me this felt like i'm now able to enter this history and at the same time say i can't trust it but this is what i would do to it because i'm not touching it mm-hmm. and then it opens more opportunities for yeah the form to to transform or it it could be widened and opened up um because obviously i'm not going to be the only one making films there's many of us who are going to be now suddenly entering these rooms that we were not designed to be in um and that, and and that's we don't have a choice but to submit um romel kind of going off of that another theme that you bring up in your podcast with jason is the idea of refusal um you posit that as a way to counter um this kind of evidentiary nature of the image this decisive nature of the documentary image and i'm very curious what that actually means to you what refusal means to you in your own practice i often struggle with that word it's obviously a word that's used often in in anti-colonial spaces you know and i i'm often worried that in refusing you are still like subversion refusal it's still you know challenging the norm or the dominant form and so are you just like kind of repeating this dynamic of like the dominant and the margin you know or you're saying like is is okay let me put it this way i'm rambling a little but is an image premised on refusal only readable in departure from the dominant form or from the norm you know and so what does refusal mean to you i guess yeah i you know i i definitely take liberty to uh not remember what i said and uh and change my mind um and i take and i do actually take that seriously i think that in order to deal with the things there must be a lot of contradiction and there has to be a lot of um illogic because the rationale like rationale and logic is what produced this version of um you know the world and and the forms but in terms of refusal yeah i i i don't quite remember why did i use refusal because to me it's it's more about playing my own game with my own rules um and thinking about the consequences of uh the way which things worked before and then thinking about strategies to um undermine but also to 
expand. Like it's not about, you know, you, you can get stuck in resistance. It's not about saying no. It's not about not doing it. It's more about, you know, shading in a space, uh, providing language and providing visuals that haven't existed before, which is quite easy for people of color. Like there's most of the images of us have never been produced um, by us. So, you know, the possibility to, to offer an image to the world of a person in a, a beautiful gesture or in eye contact with a loved one or, or something nefarious or something not nefarious is just so bountiful. It's almost, it's almost terrifying. Um, but yeah, it's less about refusal and more about uh, changing the rules, even within the system, so that a person has to sort of be timeless in the piece of art that they're existing with. The images that are, are that um, Millie showed in really small doses of white folks um, or more of a sort of Western logic of thinking, photographing and videoing people of color um, are ones that have a very specific purpose. If you can just remove that purpose, then the person has to find a purpose and they might find the wrong purpose, like you said. Oh, things were so orderly back then. And that's fine. But I think that over time, images that aren't used in that way will have uh, an effect that we hope is not the effect that it had in the past. Can I ask, can I ask a follow-up follow question no. to, to Romel and, and Mills Tondo? <laughs> um, can you, I mean, I, um, I know the, the transcript very well uh, <laughs> at this point, the podcast, but, you know, I remember something, something that you said was that you know, even as you as you just said, it's sort of like the, in a way the field is is wide open um, for articulating what like what a, a black gaze might look like um, um, because there's such a dearth of, of of imagery historically. You talked about the fact that when you first moved to South Carolina to Alabama, it still took you three years to get beyond the cliches of photograph photography in the south and portraiture in the south um that maybe you would you would you would come up on and so maybe i mean could you speak a little bit about that about sort of wrestling maybe even what those like cliches were that you had to you know get beyond why you why they embedded themselves in you and then sort of what it meant like what it looked like to, to get beyond them yeah i'd love um I love that I, I I love that question only because I remember when I decided to be like I'm gonna be honest with myself like these photos suck, and it's not that they're not beautiful, and it's not that they wouldn't be shown in a gallery, and it's not that people wouldn't hang them on their walls. It's just that what the photos were doing when I was living in Hell County for the first three years, um, with my large format camera, is that they were reproducing every image you've ever seen of a black child in the South, right? The light was beautiful. There's moss. There's some, some eye contact. The child's playing. And you spend no time in blackness. You spend no true time in the South. You spend no true time with these people. What you do is, as human beings, we connect with every other image you've ever seen of people of color. And then we make assumptions or we make realizations or we interpret just based on the, the way in which our imagination has been curated. And so um, for me, it was important to be in touch with the documentary history of the South, with Walker Evans and and you know the FSA and William Christianberry, and though he didn't photograph people, and understand that the reason that I think this photo looks good and is working is not because I came up with the idea of a photograph looking good myself. It's because I've been trained by a media 
I've been trained by culture to use the camera in a certain way, to think of things as beautiful in these certain ways, to think of this as valuable. And that's why I think that this image works. And it does in that context, but then how do I, you know, be in the South and use, um, use that geography, which, which is, I argue, the, the origin of blackness in uh, the American value system, visual constitution or whatever. Um, yeah, how do I do this here, but not do that, if that makes sense. Um, but can I say one more thing? Thanks. Wait, I'm, you're supposed to ask me. Oh yeah. <laughs> Millie, can I say one more thing? Just kidding. <laughs> can I say one more thing? Yes. Thanks. Um, I tried to be polite. There's one, because there's so much to say. You, you brought up everything, really, uh, in, in a couple lines. And I, I want to drop this, because I don't think that we'll get back to this. But if we go back to when the photograph, when we're captured, when light is bouncing off of something, and it's coming into a lens, and it's being captured onto a thing, when we, when we look at the ideology that's born in, it's born in um, a Western value system, a Western value system that's Descartes, a Western value system that's Aristotle, a Western value system that is thought production over time, right? It's not just that it's a technology, which is true. It's that it's built into a way of thinking about the world and thinking about the world as separate from us, as separate from me, as separate from uh, Enrique, me as separate from um, KJ. And with that, um, my favorite thing to think about, which is not even something I can do for a long time because it, it's really difficult, if not impossible, is like what would happen if the camera was born in another ideology, right? What would have happened if, uh, if Eastern logic, if Buddhist logic, and not that these other uh, ways of viewing the world don't have problems or don't do other things in the world in weird ways, but what would happen if we considered people not to be separate from people, nothing to be separate from anything else, would we be othering people through the camera? Would we be pointing the camera? When I was taught photography, I was taught you use the camera to, to point to something and say this has value, right? But you're pointing, um, and to point is to separate, essentially. And so as a thought experiment, like how do we, how do we go back and then come forward with um, these things in mind? This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Ovid, a curated streaming service of rare films from around the world. To mark the 50th anniversary of the 1973 coup in Chile, Ovid presents a program spanning three generations of Chilean cinema, including the exclusive streaming premiere of master documentarian Patricio Guzman's Chile, Obstinate Memory. The program also features a selection of films by Ignacio Aguero, including 100 Children Waiting for a Train, three films by El Conde's Pablo Lorraine, including Tony Monero, works from Raul Ruiz, including the playful The Wandering Soap Opera, and seven films by emerging auteur Dominga Sotomayor, including Too Late to Die Young. Sign up at ovid.tv today for your free seven-day trial. That's O-V-I-D TV. So funny you say this because I wrote down um, this exact point that you're making, um, and I want to use your film actually as a reference, Hale County, as well as that Kevin Carter photograph from um, the 1993 um, Ethiopian Senate, um, as well as a scene that didn't make it into my film, in which um, it's either it was either me or Hank Hill, my cinematographer, who was filming my grandmother. Uh, we filmed her over, over I think five years. Um, and we just used to just follow her for days and hours. And in one of the scenes, um, she, who is very much unaware that she's been filmed sometimes, sometimes she, she just doesn't care. She's so comfortable with it between myself and Hanky. Um, 
eventually, and she never really speaks to the camera. And one day we're filming her and she's watering her garden and she runs out of water from her watering can. And then she says to Hanky in English, water. And then she drops the camera, but keeps it on and leaves it on the ground and fetches the water and comes back and gives it to her. And I want to refer to the scene in your film where uh, you're filming or somebody's filming and a man um, falls. Um, I'm not sure if he's having a seizure or there's somebody who falls, but you put the camera down. Is that, I don't know if it's Hell County or your Yeah, that's uh, Easter Snap. Easter Snap. Yeah, yeah. Easter Snap, but the moment where you put the camera down and and you help and you keep it rolling, Versus not to, you know, only use him as an example, but versus what we were taught in school about that Kevin Carter photograph and how you have to keep filming, even though there's a vulture that's about to eat the child and, and this idea of values. And what does it mean to include Isintu and Ubuntu where you're like, we're going to keep filming, but we're going to be human about it, too. And we're going to we can do both things where the most important thing is not to regard and respect the, the shooting but to, to regard and respect who you are shooting and the moment and how do we invite culture into that moment. So this is what I just wanted to say in response to that. No, that's fantastic. And that actually was what I was thinking of. I think that, Romel, you bringing the term value is so useful because it also points to how much documentary filmmaking has been tied up in the logic of capitalism, you know, and this idea that when you produce an image of someone that it becomes a commodity whether it's cultural value or actual economic value, you know, a lot of these images have circulated in actual, you know, commercial kind of networks. And it's something I always struggle with in observational documentaries. I saw a film uh, a few years ago by Sylvan George, uh, Nui Obscure, Obscure, which in which he's embedded with these Moroccan teenagers who are trying to um, illegally get into Europe, into Spain, and he's like following them around. And I remember there's there was a moment that really bothered me where a kid like falls off of a wall, is like climbing over a wall and falls down, you know, and is clearly injured, but the camera stays. And it is such a subversion of the human instinct. You know, if you didn't have a camera in your hand, what would you do? You would run down, you would scream. But somehow there is this belief that looking is more valuable than doing. Like so much of documentary seems rooted in this idea that observing, looking and recording are incredibly powerful and valuable more so than doing. And I just struggle with that so much. Can just say one thing, um, which is that I listened to one of the things that stuck with me in listening to, I don't know how many hours of tape from the Flaherty, is if you know anything about the Flaherty, it's famous, notorious, infamous for like heated conversations is a, it's a polite phrase, sometimes like often kind of nasty arguments. Um, and one of the things is, you know, it's wild hearing, especially only through audio when you don't have any other context, you know, people being rather mean, you know, and oftentimes to filmmakers, you know, critiquing them about the, the, the errancy of their ways. And, you know, one of the things I thought about is it's funny, like, you know, I'm all for, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm all for the, the concept of, of truth and I believe in vaccines and you know we should like make sure we get our vaccines but but the way in which truth is marshaled as this out there as this end to which the means to which I can yell it like tell you like just how 
absolutely misguided your film is, and if you really knew what you're doing, and if you're really serving, you know, it's this out there that like we imagine ourselves being in service to, and that seems to often happen at the expense of the room itself, of like how we're accountable to one another in this room, and that maybe it's like we might start with there is, I mean, I think there isn't out there, um, but but we might start with you know, and and in here and thinking about the terms of the room, I mean, you know, socially, intimately, even like the, the configuration, you know, of, of this room is a really useful place to start. But this, 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 this higher good, um, that documentary that they need to shoot, even when the, the kid is injured, you know, often serves as an alibi um, to, you know, to, to overlook these, these very simple, but, but really hard, you know, questions um, about intimacy, which also I just want to say, I think that, um, I mean, both of your works do. I think one of the things that that's remarkable about both of your projects is the is that is the number of scales at which they're always working. Um, sort of, they offer sometimes more explicitly and implicit, implicitly like structural and historical framings. But both of your works are always well are are attuned to the moment, to the body, to the to embodied histories and dynamics that we that 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 we carry with us and I think that that like that impossible tension sometimes is really rare and just in, and and incredibly rich and something that I value quite a bit. You know? Yeah, can I say one thing? Um connected to that but it's it's more uh, about Millie's film um and the scaling which is something that it hit me pretty hard in your film and it might be right after that montage then we is that your mom on the bed singing the national anthem or like one of those? My aunt. Yeah, that it just like, whew, it was so, so, so devastating because, you know, the scale of you filming your family and then going into these these montage sequences that are both like aesthetically pleasing, emotionally distraught and heavy, but also, you know, psychologically disquieting. And then to drop into your mom, your aunt singing that song um, is a type of scaling I think you're talking about in which, it goes from the personal, the subjective, the ideal, the the formal, just like almost every single language thing we have for the way in which a person is socialized in the world, and then to indoctrination. Um, and it's it's a tough thing to deal with because just because, uh, and I know Millie is not saying that this is the case, um, but just because a, a person of color is filming or a person from their family is filming, a person of their family does not mean that they're filming in the way in which is open and operating in a way that is, is helpful. Um, we're all programmed, you know? Um, we're trying to get likes, we're trying to sell our film at a festival, we're trying to be able to make work, we're trying to make a career, and all of those factors um, perpetuate uh, something that none of us uh, asked for, or none of us necessarily personally, individually participated in, in building. I actually want to go off of that, Romel. You know, one way in which I feel like the visual regime, if we can call it that, you know, this this regime of images that is so paramount today, you know, is as the bringer of truth, as the you know mode of representation. What that also does is it makes it's put it puts value in certain aspects of experience and identity that are visible at the cost of other aspects of identity and experience that are not visible. So race or skin color or whatever you want to call it, these, you know, these become overvalued. And so for instance, Millie, your film might be shown with the film of 
a black filmmaker in America, and I'm sure there are connections, but there are also ge geopolitically very distinct experiences of racism. And there are uh, experiences of identity that don't come through when we, when we start thinking about um, what is visible as the most important thing. So for instance, differences of class don't often make it, you know, in, in, in that way to uh, documentaries, you know, other kinds of like imbalances of power that, for instance, I mean, your film so beautifully gets at the ways in which racism produces imbalances of power that can be actually distinct from identitarian groupings, right? Like there are, what Romel is pointing at is how there are people who were in your community who were enacting, you know, the, the principles of apartheid and you're able to like tease that out. So I'm wondering if we could talk, if both of you could talk a little bit, and Jason, you two, from the point of view of a critic, uh, about how we can attune ourselves better to the things that lie beyond the visible, even as we consume images. Like images may be an audiovisual regime, but they can actually attune us to things that are beyond the visible. Um, so, so I think for me... The thing that we were, I was always trying to do, I'm always interested in with this work and in all my other work, my writing, is about approximating the experience of what it feels like to be me as a black person, which I cannot separate class from it. I cannot separate spirituality and religion from it. I cannot separate colorism from it. I cannot separate, none of these things are separate. So I can never ever be looking at one thing only. I can't afford to do that. Why? Because inside this body, the experience of being alive is having to deal with all these things at the same time. And so how do you then invite the medium into that process? How do you make the audience go, wait, class, race, spirituality, gender, all of these things are not separate. And so I'm always trying to approximate so that there is always these contradictions. There is always this complexity and these multi-layers um, without being didactic about it, without being like, yes, it's connected or, you know, pointing it out in ways that are obvious, because that is what it's like to, ex ex to, to live in a, in a body that is racialized. And of course, we are all racialized. I love sometimes when I watch like TV shows or listen to radio shows and, you know, a white person will say, you know, this other person is ethnic. I'm like, but so are you. <laughs> We're all ethnic. Ethnicity yeah. is a thing that everybody is invited to. And so... Or when people are like, that person has an accent. We like, all also, have, yeah. have an accent. Yeah. Or like when you imagine in people's minds, when they're like driving into the hood, they're like going into the black community. Yeah. But then like exactly. when they're going home, they're not like going into the white, white community. community. Exactly. <laughs> Just going home. Exactly. <laughs> it's again, this exercise of seeing and, and seeing which implicates seeing oneself first. And I, I don't, I don't say I want to put myself in the thing because I'm vain or anything. It's because, well, we can't separate the ways in which we see from who we are. And so it has to be a dual thing. There has to be a looking at the other, but first I need to look at myself. And I think this, these, this is the, the big challenge of, um, inside this conversation in spaces like this and in, within the documentary community is, is this idea. I call it the liberal waltz where, um, we're able to sit down and all say, we see the same thing and this thing is wrong. And there's that, and when you really get close at it, when we're experiencing it within the people who hold, who have certain bodies in these spaces, and you say, but look at yourself, there's this refusal. 
People are like, no, 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 it's over there. It's my aunt, it's my uncle, it's my neighbor, it's the Trump supporter, it's this, but no, no, no. It's like, what does it mean to encounter your own image in the mirror and how these things live with you? Which is why one of the questions I asked my white friends in the film is, when was the first time you realized you were white? Because it's always us answering. I realized when I was black and I'm like, no, this also happened to you. And it always catches people out because not in a bad way, but they go, oh, I've never thought about that. Why? Because whiteness is not seen. And, and, and even uh, people of upper class, your class is never seen or your um, skin tone or all the ways in which your body is privileged to some degree. Not that we're doing like oppression Olympics, but like everybody has something in which they are benefiting and some, some way in which they are not benefiting. One way in which they are powerful, one way in which they're not, they're, they're not powerful. And the exercise is always to try to get at this idea of, of approximating as much of all the things we carry as possible into this, the, the things we are saying about race and, and history and class and all these things, which, which is embodied. It's all embodied. That's the word I wanted to use. All of these things are embodied. These words are not just separate. They're not just outside of it. And let's call them in to say, oh, how is classism embodied in me? How is my accent, you know, making me move through this word easier, than, this world easier than somebody back home who doesn't have this accent? One, maybe I'll say a, you know, a few quick things. Um, one of them, I mean, one of the sort of figures whose writing and thought I turn to quite a bit is the as the um, abolitionist scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and you know her phrasing. And actually, I think I'm now doing the weird thing of quoting myself from a different part of the series. Um, but she has this wonderful phrasing um, that you know, Black Lives Matter means that. Um, when Black Lives Matter, everyone lives better, um, which is to say that there's no, like in the in the call that Black Lives Must Matter, it's not a project about some sort of essentialism. It's a recognition that if you create a world um, in which Black people live better, then it, then everybody you know lives better. The other it's like the other formulation I think about sometimes, which I think maybe misquoting Fred Moten, but it's like. The coalition emerges when you realize it's fucked up for you in the same way that it's fucked up for me, which is to say that it's like if, you know, it, it's a, for me, it's a really good call to, to, to have that conversation rather than to avoid the conversation. Um, because like if this, like if we want to pretend to have a collective experience that we're all a part of here, like it fundamentally can't happen if people are having radically different, you know, um, experiences or radically different ac accesses access to the terms of that, you know, experience. And so for, I guess for me, that's um, why I at least, you know, want in some way to kind of turn these, you know, turn the questions back inwards. And I mean, maybe the last thing I'll say is that I don't like film, I, you know, I edit world records. We, we publish um, a lot of writing about documentary, but we don't really do, you know, I, I don't really think of what we do as criticism. And like the rickety analogy I've come up with is that like a critic might write, you know, a critic might go to a basketball game and write about the basketball game and what happened and what didn't and the highs and the lows, you know, whatever. You know, I'm interested in actually, I'm interested in the basketball itself as like a force that is, that moves around a field that's also a focus of forces, this thing that absorbs all of the energy of the people around it. Um, and for me, it's really exciting to, um, like I think there are people a lot of people who can write, you know, way better as critics about both of your work. Like I'm, what 
really excites me is seeing how they're taken up and how they're taken up differently in different contexts. Um, and for me, that just looking beyond the frame to how people, what forms and terms of relation they make possible is really like, that's, that's, that's really interesting and, and exciting um, to me. Yeah, me too. Um, um, I think I want to just quickly say, uh, get to embodiment, um, which I love that you said to bring, I think you said something along the lines of bring yourself into the, the complexity of yourself into the form or something, which a form, the form is fundamentally reductive. Um, and so I think about embodiment and it's something that was important for the film and experience creation. That's what it is. It's like, if you give someone an experience of something, they will not deny that they did, they had something. If you have someone watch something, I think this, this like every, not every uh, this philosopher, William James, Continental, I don't know, Frankfurt School, I don't know. Uh, he, he says to preference perception over conception, um, which is something obviously is like, I want to have an experience and not be, you know, given something to think about because when it goes through that filter first, not that our perception isn't also um, a lens itself. Anyway, getting slightly lost, but I, I wanted to mention that, you know, there's, there's precedent for bringing the camera, you know, making the camera an organ, which I like to say. And, um, you know, the re one of the reasons why Hell County was so well received by a lot of people here, like, you know, Maxine and Tabitha, um, is uh, Camera Person, which is a film that um, I would say for the first time made it all about the documentary space of truth, but about the person's relationship to the documentary space of truth and not the documentary notion of uh, observation of fly on the wall of truth, which is a fallacy, though I think maybe a necessary phase to get through, to get to where we are now. Um, I think that's kind of almost where maybe embodiment starts. And then it's about, uh, yeah, no longer allowing the form to even when we're making films that are politically oriented and we're trying to, you know, stir someone into action to find ways to just not let the form, the camera itself, the editing present a world that is universal and a world that is objective. And the filming itself should not be pushed towards the universal standards of beauty, which um, I think are rooted in the erasure of the gaze uh, of the person, which we know the origin of the gaze. And that's participates in the same logic um, that we're all sort of trying to fight against. Yeah, I and I should just mention because people will listen to this on, on the Film Common podcast, you know, in the weeks to come, but uh, the director of camera person is in the room with us, Kirsten Johnson. And yeah. <laughs> and I do remember a particular moment in that film where uh, Kirsten, I think you're filming like a lightning strike or something in the sky and then you sneeze and the camera shakes and I, it's so powerful because you're capturing this like cosmic reality you know you're trying to find that decisive moment that Henri Cartier-Bresson talks about and then you show us your own kind of you know fragility and contingency as a, you know as the camera person and so you really show like all documentaries exist at the intersection of those kinds of cosmic things and then just like the most banal contingent human thing. Yes. I, 
Um, it's so thrilling to listen to you talk. Not uh, talk about camera person, but um, so so Millie, you know what you're talking about embodiment, the complexity of all that is happening in you, all that is projected onto you, the history of the specific place in which you're living. Um, the problem I'm trying to wrestle with now, and Ramel, what you write about, like. Let us swallow the cameras, like let the cameras become part of our bodies. What I'm really um, curious about is how we all face this future um, in which, you know, the camera comes from a certain technology born in certain places and it's a machine. Camera's not going to die. We are, um, you know, images will outlive us. Um, so I'm just really curious about the language that you're searching for, that I'm searching for. Like, what are we all becoming? We are all camera people. We're all, we all have our camera in our pockets. Um, so we're all part cyborg, but that's not the word. Um, but I think we, you know, we're living into bodies we are born in that have different shapes and histories and, um, yet we're attaching these machines to our bodies. Um, and, you know, I think the writers of fiction films, the actors of fiction films, camera people, we all understand that um, there are machines we created that don't have bodies. So AI doesn't have a body, right? And um, so the, the dim I would say like, Many people in many places in the world have been the front lines of not having their bodies valued. I would say, you know, you all live in that space in ways differently that I live in that space, but I live in that space too. Every person in this room has a way in which their body is devalued by the systems built around us. So um, I just would love to hear you talk about um, this, this grafting that's happened. We have like machine, immortal machines grafted to our bodies. Um, so that's a question, right? If, if I. <laughs> Thank you, Kirsten. If I could maybe say something and follow up to that to, to open it up to you guys is, you know, I also think about like drones. I mean, not even AI, there's like surveillance cameras, drones, all these impersonal cameras. Um, fixing us all the time, fixing us, you know, and, um, but then I think about what you said, Romel, at the beginning of this conversation, images are what we make of them. We make decisions about images in and of themselves. They, it's not like they tell us what to think. We decide what to make of images. So I'm wondering if we can talk about the question Kristen has raised from that point of view as well. There is the question of, images being made without bodies and what that does to already a history of unequal embodiment. But then maybe a way to think about that is like, what are we going to make of these images? And how do we teach? Maybe teach is the wrong word, but how do we learn to still read images in an embodied way, no matter where they're like coming from, I guess. I think perspective is very important here. Um, um, from where I'm coming from, 
the need to make images doesn't come from me. They need to record stories, they need to record time, they need to record language, they need to record the visuals and the voices and the faces of my people. It didn't start with me. It started with my father, who was an author um, and, a, and a poet and a musician um, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. It started with my grandfather and my great-grandfather, who before he knew how to write, apparently he used to write on rocks. Um, and this was his practice of trying to record images at something. And so there's, there's, there's this, I'm, I'm, I'm coming from the perspective of archiving and personal archiving and using this material, this, this medium, not necessarily to play catch up, but to say, damn, we haven't had it. Now that we have it, how do we record so that in 50 years time and 100 years time, for posterity's sake, my great grandchildren and other people can say, oh, this is what it looked like when black people were lounging in East London in 1994. That's it. Because right now we only just have written for a long time we just had written um modes and and photographs what does it mean when those images come alive and and in the filming of of my documentary i started out taking you know crews to film my family in the, in the trans sky you know men with big cameras and dreadlocks and you know which immediately changes the way people behave in a room and so because i was like i've never made a film before let me get the dops and the people who made films before to come and capture the, the, my grandmother and everybody, and suddenly everyone is standing with their back straight, and they can't look because now there's these men with dreadlocks and people with machines and things in the room. And so we said, we can't do this. They're not, they're nothing is, this is not my family. This is not that people. So I then had to pick up the camera and become a camera person, whether I liked it or not. And using this thing mostly and not a big camera because the big camera immediately changes how the person is engaging with this thing because now you're photographing me. So now I'm going to perform, but everybody has this. And no one necessarily knows when I'm filming for the film and I'm filming for, for family stuff, I'm filming to share in the WhatsApp group. And so this medium then empowers me and the people that I'm filming to, to be themselves inside of it. And so I'm still at the stage where I'm, I'm regarding that process and not necessarily, and, and again, it's a question of technology and medium and, and the medium and access. If I were to come with my big cameras now that I've gone to Sundance and I'm in America, when I go back home, I, I can't, I'm not going to be able to, maybe I can get like a, an, 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 like a, what do you call it? Like a black magic or something, a tiny little one and, and go in there with it. But again, the technology that I enter with is something that's going to transform the space. And so I'm still at the space where I'm there and I completely understand what this, this question of like, actually, what does it mean? But I think there are many ways to, to eat the elephant. I think there are many of us, because we're all here, there are many ways in which we can approach this thing. And I don't know if there's a universal or one approach to it. It all depends, again, on our vantage points and who we are and who is being with these. With these. And I really liked in the, in the film that we watched like last night, um, The Castle, where towards at the end of the film, because I was always wondering, what would it feel like if this mother and daughter were filming themselves? I really enjoyed that. Okay, they have the, the cell phone footage of the mother and daughter filming themselves now. Um, and, and I thought that that was a really powerful juxtaposition because, um, it's, it's, it's again a question of technology being so successfully disseminated, um, in the 21st century. And I don't, I don't know where we're going with it. I'm just happy to have arrived at the, at the place where self-determination through this medium is, is more accessible than it's ever been in terms of who will I be in 50 years time. I guess maybe just two, you know, Two quick thoughts. One, 
I became fascinated several years ago by this um, by the fact that you know most like most of the camera brands that that we recognize don't actually manufacture you know manufacture the totality of the cameras in in one plant. Um, most are reliant on really long, complex assembly lines, you know, mashing together um, global supply chains, and they have to be thinking ten years, you know, always be thinking ten years ahead, so that their assembly lines, from where sensors are made to the camera bodies to lenses, you know, etc., can all be in alignment for where they need to go. Which means that, like, you know, always thinking sort of the sort of always having to be um, you know, fortune tellers in a way, see where the world is going, and then inhabit that perspective and remake the present to, to match, you know, the imagined future. And I think that we tend to, whenever, when we say things like, again, I don't think like drone, drone cameras are going away anytime soon, but when we, when we say, oh, AI is inevitable, Therefore, we might as well, therefore we might as well, you know, come to terms, learn how to stop worrying and love, love these technologies that terrify us. We're actually sort of ushering in the future that someone else, you know, has predicted and being active parts. And I think it's like that, seeing the moment from someone else's imagined future, from a future that will serve someone else really well is maybe an impossible thing to keep in mind, but just, but, but is worth keeping in mind. Like, what are we, you know, what terms are we are we bringing with us uh, when we're when we're shooting, you know, when we're making stuff? But I mean, the other thing I would say is that, you know, for so many, you know, for many reasons we talked about, like the space of the festival is like, it's you know, it's fraught. It's racially, it's politically, it's culturally fraught. But that doesn't mean. But you know, I think it's like, I mean, I knew this about myself before the pandemic, but after the pandemic, it's like I need actually spaces like this. Like it's a need. Like I need to talk to people. I need to see people. I need to see. Uh, Ramel's work and Mil Satando's work. Um, I would be like lonely, you know. I mean, I, I'd be like really unhappy. And so, you know, the 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 project is not whether we're talking about technology. I think or festivals or or work is not to be like, oh, you liked X's film. Well, let me tell you why your favorite your favorite is problematic. You know, it's not to it's um, because that doesn't do. It's not just not. It's not. It's not useful. If we sort of say, well, this thing that we've created is really problematic, but we don't replace it, you know, we don't offer any alternatives. And so it's like if for me, if I like it's a good starting point to acknowledge I can't just like divorce myself from this field of cultural production because I actually need it. And so then it's like think about the terms, you know, I can start thinking about the terms on which I need it, how and why and sort of what makes it. Yeah, you know, at a very at a very sort of in, you know individual level and, and then maybe more more programmatic level like what can make it more sustainable and more 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 just that's how i guess that's how i tend to think yeah what was the what was the question i guess kirsten's question was about how do we face this future where images might be produced in more and more disembodied ways is that you want to say it again or rephrase it Yes, I think that what you're, what you affirm, Millie, is just this, uh, the power of self-determination for so many people in the world who have been, uh, completely denied access to film production, but it's so fantastic the way you're all unearthing. What are the, what are the building blocks that created this world? What was, what was the law that was put in place that said an African person could not film themselves? Um, 
that is, we do need to be taught that because that history has been buried for all of us and, and naturalized and normalized. So we've got to unearth that. And that's the work that you're doing. Um, to jump off of what you're saying, Jason, the question is, I think that those same kind of laws are being built right now. And, um, we're also euphoric about the possibilities of self-determination that have never been possible. And we're euphoric about the fact that we can share with the world what we think and experience in somewhere in the world that we're missing the laws that are being built around us. Um, and I feel like I'm in like the heart of the brain trust right here with all of you. You're, you think so deeply and beautifully about these questions. So I just want to share that I'm struggling with trying to recognize. And I feel like um, after making camera person, there were a lot of camera people who came to me and said, I always wanted to make that film. And uh, tell me about what your film would have been. And because it's like this shared history of we've been collecting images, we've been asked to collect images and how do we put them back together again? Um, so that one of my, you know, sort of most beloved experiences in life is getting to meet filmmakers from everywhere. Um, and I get this sense that there are people in certain bodies, in certain places in the world who are increasingly endangered. And part of that is, you know, sort of machines of systems being built around them, machines of surveillance. Um, some of, sometimes it's machines of capitalism, right? But, but I'm really interested in what you're saying, you know, Jason, about we need this. We, this, this form of communication that is, that is a person plus a machine plus other people interacting is creating images. And those images are meaningful to all of our lives, right? But I think what is about to happen is a splitting of the images from human bodies. And we will not be able to understand anymore which images are of actual humans whether actual humans made the images. And so that the th your three years of like searching through the reproduction of what came before, the machines are gonna scrape it, scrape the majority and make what was made before, right? So I guess I'm just, these are all the, the questions that I'm struggling with. And it's like the, how do, we how do we resist? How do we refuse? How do we create strategies? How do we not get lost in, um, nostalgia or the, the euphoria about like, whoa, we finally have our chance and miss what's what laws they're building right now. And I say they, but I think, you know, it's, it's a collective historical human act um, in our short relationship to moving images. That's my question, uh, Ramel. Thanks, KJ. Yeah. And I will just say that we're out of time. So... <laughs> Well, Mel, maybe you can uh, respond pithily to that. <laughs> no such thing. Um, yeah, I've, I've tried to think about these things, and it's daunting. You know, it's, it's like thinking about, you know, generational change. You know, we're so far behind. And I'm uh, maybe buoyed slightly by 
just the notion that the bespoke will just become more fabulous and distinct from the artificial or whatever that means, the synthesized, the AI curated, the drone footage. Um, I, I feel like I, I have yet to see, um, and maybe this is Turing test, you know, area uh, concepts. I've yet to see computer generated imagery and work that can move me in the way in which a human beings can. I've yet to, to hear writing or prose that is supersedes the capacity of, of you know, the human output. Um, maybe I have and I didn't know it and that's terrifying to think about. But I think that um, from a philosophical standpoint, um, while I think I, I can't spend, I know you're not asking me to KJ, I can't spend my time thinking about the bigger concepts of the direction of, of cinema, media, two-dimensional work, three-dimensional work, four-dimensional work. I think what I can do is I can make uh, I, based on my experience and based on the tools that I've, you know, sharpened over the course of time, uh, to produce small interventions that, in the same way that, you know, a person wants to do good, like you want to, I don't know, this is maybe the worst quote ever, but like first thing you should do, make your bed in the morning. Like if you do those little things um, in your own work and you're taking care of yourself and you're educating people to do those other little things. Um, I would argue that the early documentarians, I mean, we know they thought they were doing the best thing ever. Like they, these folks were on their high horse for how good of a service they were offering to humanity. And they were in certain senses and in other senses, they weren't. And so I would argue that if we put, what am I arguing? <laughs> I would argue that if we spend time in the incremental and we are culturally aware with this new language and we're making markers, then it'll become contagious. And then in 10 years, we'll look back, like Millie said, oh, these are my people on the porch by my people. And it will mean something different. It'll have had a different effect. And the way in which the wave will be, will, will be a big tsunami and then go back into the ocean. We won't be able to pinpoint exactly where that wave is, but we'll know that it's the undercurrent of, you know, the way in which culture is moving or something. Also, real quick, I believe that human beings will will always miss ourselves. We will always have the capacity to miss ourselves. So there's always something that we're going to want to return to in on the onslaught of this other fake stuff. I also maybe believe, separately from that, this isn't to, to say something after you did, but um, I love I love saying this because like I would love for people to think about the idea that the way that the image and cinema works on our brains is unnatural. Okay, I don't know what unnatural is. I don't know what organic is and not organic, synthetic, not synthetic, but like perhaps we're not supposed to remember in certain ways. Perhaps we're not supposed to see a version of ourselves from an angle that is, a, that is an emotionally resonant only because of the lighting as the only marker for who we were during that time period in that moment. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but like the idea that the photograph and these ways of remembering ourselves and seeing ourselves are wholly positive, I think it's just a, a problem, a, a, some sort of fallacy of the direction of thinking. I like to think about perhaps we're supposed to let things go into the mush of our brains and continue into the world in, in ways that, that the media and cinema has been doing or not doing. I feel like this idea that like, Oh, but what if like you could be fooled into thinking this was made by a human? Of course, that has serious political implications in the creation of images. But 
we're talking about filmmaking and art. I'm like, yeah, but I like movies because of the story of their making. Like, yeah. in and of itself, art doesn't hold as much value for me as something as part of the story of its maker and its making. Like, if I saw Hale County and I was moved by it and someone was like, well, it was made by an AI, I'd be like, all right, I'll kind of forget about this. But I know it was made by Rommel and I know how he approaches his work and I have these opportunities to meet him and talk to him. And that is what to me art is. So it's like, I feel like this fear that we may be fooled into thinking things were made by machines is rooted in the fallacy that art is something that exists outside of the artist, right? And like, what is art? It is like, it is the, the stories we tell ourselves about our fellow humans who make cool shit out of nothing. You yeah. Know? So. It's also rooted in the idea that and maybe this is semantic, but the people who were making the stuff before weren't making the stuff like machines because it's an industry and most of the images we made because they're based on other things, like an AI could make that image because that's what that image feels like anyway, you know? And so um, just to throw into the bucket. And it's not the image that I need. It's I need the story that someone made that image for a reason. You know, that's I'm against I mean. a tyranny of narrative. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to throw that out right. too just kidding well, on, that, <laughs> All right. on that note uh anyway we are like uh we we're past our time but this panel is just so these guests are so incredible so thank you so much the film comment podcast features original music by greg ing Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.